Why don't we take a minute and pray before we jump into the message this morning. Father, we just look to you today and we do ask you to speak to us in our time together as we look at what your word has to say and we look at this story. It's a familiar story, the Christmas story, and yet, Lord, it's, it can make such a difference in our lives. And we thank you that you love the world so much as to send your son to be our savior. We're grateful for that. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to look at the story of the Magi, which is the correct pronunciation. And um, it's a familiar story, I know, to many of you, but I wanted to start today with a quiz and see how well you do. So you can kind of keep a, a mental track of, of how you do with this quiz. I've got six uh, questions here. The first one is this. It's a true or false. The Magi were most likely kings. So don't shout out your answer or anything, but just think in your mind the Magi were most likely uh, kings, true or false? Uh, and the answer to the first one is uh, false. So I know we sing the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are, but most likely as Magi, they, were, they might have been counselors to the kings. They were a combination of actually of a, a priest, scientist, and astrologer. It was that, that kind of combination of an individual uh, Daniel was someone who is considered to be uh, magus, which is the singular form of magi. And uh, in the Old Testament also, when you get to the story of Moses confronting Pharaoh, those priests that were with him that performed the miracles, those were also considered magi. But they were not most likely kings. Uh, Dr. Nolan writes about the Magi. He's a scholar. The word Magi was originally applied exclusively to members of a priestly caste of uh, Medes and Persians who had esoteric skills in interpreting dreams. Now, it became broader than that. Okay, number two, do we know the names of the Magi? Yes or no? Once again, uh, the answer is no, we do not. Uh, there have been some names that were suggested, Balthazar, Casper, and Melchior. You may have heard those names. Those were discovered on a document uh, 500 AD-ish. And that was the first time those names uh, came into existence. But we really don't know, and we're not sure where those names came from. But we really do not know what their names are. Number three, how many Magi were there? Three, 12 or we don't know. Uh, and again, um, the answer to that one is we really do not know. There were some assumptions made that it was three, but uh, the bottom line is they came a long distance. They traveled hundreds of miles. It would have taken months to get there. It would have been a huge caravan. So when you envision like three people coming in on camels, it wasn't that, it was a huge caravan. And when they arrived in the city, it would have really disrupted everything. But most likely it was a large group. Fourth question, how many types of gifts did the Magi bring? Three, 12, or we don't know? The answer is three. That's one we do know, although there could have been more, but at least the three that are listed are the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And of course, a lot of people have tried to find symbolism in those three, you know, gold representing Jesus' kingly role. The frankincense would be his priestly role. You know, you'd offer frankincense or incense to God, and myrrh was a burial spice. Uh, in a practical sense, by the way, those gifts probably provided the funds that the young family, Joseph and Mary, needed 
because they ended up fleeing to Egypt, which I want to talk about next week. And this would have been where they got the money to live there the time that they were there. Five, from where did the Magi most likely come? Israel, Persia, or Babylon, or Egypt? The word Magi is a Persian word, so we're pretty certain that they came from that part of the world, uh, which is our modern-day Iraq or Iran. That's where they would have come from that region. And then finally, when did the Magi arrive? A, the night of Jesus' birth or close to it, or B, years Jesus, after Jesus was born. Uh, although we usually see cards that have the Magi in the same scene as Mary and Joseph with the stall and everything else, or the manger scene, uh, they would have come probably a year and a half to two years later. Uh, so they were not there. They're not really officially part of the Christmas story, but they are, and it's fine that they appear in postcards. But just to realize, it took them uh, probably eight or nine months to get there. They probably had to plan for a few months as well, and they didn't arrive until Jesus was probably a year and a half to two years of age. We know this for two reasons. One is that the word that's used to describe the baby Jesus in the story is an older baby. It's not a reference to a newborn as it is earlier when he was born. So it's a different Greek word that's used. And second, when Herod decided to try to kill the children, he chose two years of age and under, so we know that it was within that window that Jesus had been born. So I'm curious, any of you get them all right? Any, anyone here gonna get them all right? Oh, I see some hands there. I'm impressed. All right. Well, we're going to look at the story. Our, our story today is found in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Now, if you were here last week, you know that we're doing a series titled BC, which usually stands for Before Christ, uh, or in our case, Before Christmas. But what this series is about is looking at the Christmas story, but also looking at the prophecy that's referred to in the Christmas story. Matthew includes some prophecies from the Old Testament. Matthew indicates that certain things happened as a fulfillment of a prophecy. So in a sense, in the Old Testament, we had Christmas before Christmas, you know. Before Jesus was born, there was an indication he would be born. And so we're looking at the Christmas story, but then I'm looking specifically at the Old Testament where the prophecy was first spoken and the context of that, and then we'll try to apply it to our lives. Now, our takeaway today is this that Jesus came to be our shepherd. Now, I recognize that very few, if any of you, are shepherds, and it's an analogy that in our culture we can hardly relate to. I know that there are one or two in our congregation that have sheep, but um, we, don't, we don't relate to this, and yet, as we'll see in a minute, the story of the Magi, and specifically the prophecy, had to do with the fact that God was going to send someone to be a shepherd, and we're going to see in a minute that um, by way of application anywhere that I think Jesus wants to be our shepherd. I think we go through our lives and we feel like we just don't need someone leading us. We don't need someone taking care of us. We don't need someone providing for us. These were things that a shepherd would do. And yet I think this is what Jesus wants to do in our lives. And I think it's part of this story. With that in mind, let's go ahead and begin reading in Matthew chapter 2 about the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east, or magi, 
arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. And there's that idea of shepherding. Now, let's talk about the story. Um, this story of the Magi coming into Jerusalem is really one of the more fascinating stories related to the Christmas account, because it just raises a lot of questions. Now, you realize that some time had passed again since Jesus had been born, and so Mary and Joseph, at this time in the story, were still living in Bethlehem, but they had a place of their own. You know, they weren't, they, Jesus wasn't in a manger anymore. And so some time had passed, but realize that after Jesus was born, things had been quiet. I mean, the night that Jesus was born was like a big deal. It was like a, a celestial party took place. The angels were all proclaiming, you know, glory in the highest and peace on earth. And it was just a wonderful celebration. And then, of course, these shepherds showed up at the, at the manger where Joseph and Mary were. And it's as if the birth of Jesus could not go unnoticed, like God just had to throw a birthday party for his son. But then time had passed. A year and a half or so, maybe two years almost had passed and nothing had happened. And then all of a sudden these strangers, they show up in, in Jerusalem. And again, it was likely a large caravan because of supplies and because of safety. And so it's not like three kings coming into Jerusalem on, on camels. There might have been dozens of camels. There might have been a hundred people. We don't know, but they, they, all of a sudden they show up in the city and they ask the question, where is he who is to be born king of the Jews? Because we saw a star in the east and we've come to worship him. Now, all of that raises questions. Next week, by the way, I want to talk briefly about what I think the star was. It's kind of interesting and part of an Old Testament story as well. But these strangers show up. They're, they're not Jewish, it, it appears. Anyway, everything seems to indicate that they're not Jewish. They're, they're Gentiles. And yet they're coming to Jerusalem. Where's the king of the Jews supposed to be born? Now, they knew something. They knew he was, a king was to be born. They, they knew a Messiah of some kind was coming. They somehow recognized, by the way, that the, the star that they'd seen in the sky related to his birth. In biblical times, just so you know, oftentimes there was a certain superstition related to heavenly signs that they believed that it, if somebody of great significance was born or they died, there'd be a sign in the heavens. And so when Jesus was born, of course, there were the angels, the sign in the heavens, and the star. Of course, when Jesus died, you remember, it was dark for three hours. All of it indicating that this was a significant person. But we don't know how they knew what they knew, and they didn't know either where he'd be born, just that it had happened. And so they, they trek for hundreds of miles for months. Now, I wonder a little bit if any of us would do that. I mean, they, they must have known something, and so they arrive in the city, and of course they say, we're looking for where this king is to be born, and King Herod was not pleased by it. 
Looking at verse 2 again, it says, When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. He was disturbed because this baby represented a threat to his throne. By the way, this is Herod the Great. This is, this is not the other Herod. Uh, Herod the Great was uh, someone who died in 4 BC, which is kind of interesting because if this is the same Herod, it means he, Jesus was born before Jesus, if you know what I mean. Dr. Nolan puts it this way, the Herod here is Herod the Great who ruled as king from 37 to 4 BC. He was a figure of heroic proportions whose rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple represented a major feat of ancient architecture, but whose rule was tyrannical, ruthless, and cruel. He was an outstanding builder. In fact, they don't know how he did a lot of the building that he did, but he was also exceptionally cruel. He's the one that before the story's done is going to try to kill the baby Jesus and ends up killing the infants that are in Bethlehem. But the whole thing is a mystery. Now, part of the reason I think God included this story in the Bible is to demonstrate that Jesus was not just for Jews. He's for Gentiles, non-Jews, for you and for me. I appreciate that that story is included in here to say that it's possible for Gentiles to find Jesus and to find him specifically in this story to be the shepherd. But they asked the question of Herod, where is the baby to be born? Herod did not know the answer, so he went to the religious leaders. We pick it up again in verse 4 where it says, He assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people, Israel. They were all in agreement that this was the location. It's based on a prophecy from a prophet named Micah who lived 700 years earlier. And there was, it seems, universal agreement at the time of Christ that this baby, this Messiah whose coming was foretold was to be born in Bethlehem. Part of the reason I think they were sure of it is that someone else of note was born in Bethlehem as well. His name was King David. And King David's descendant was supposed to reign forever and ever. And so they knew that this Messiah was a descendant of David who came from Bethlehem. So when Micah made that forecast, they, they just realized this is it. It's, it's definitely Bethlehem. What's interesting about Bethlehem is how tiny it was at the time that Jesus was born. It was a dot of a town. I don't know that you could call it hardly a town. My research indicates that there would have been about 300 people that lived in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. And some have suggested it's as few as 100. So for a prophet to make a prophecy 700 years in advance that the most significant person who's ever been born is going to be born in a town of 100 to 300 people is really quite remarkable. It would be kind of like picking a town in West Virginia that you've heard of but have no idea where it is because it's so small. You know, one stoplight. And you realize, yeah, the Messiah is going to be born there. And you'd say, really? I mean, I understand that David came from there, but the idea that the Messiah would come from there, 
It's one of the reasons I'm confident that the Bible is the word of God because you, you really couldn't prophesy something like this except that it be from God. But let's look at the original prophecy. Let's go back to Micah and what he was talking about when he made the prophecy. And so we go to Micah chapter 5, and verse 1 starts out kind of odd and ominously. It goes this way, Now, daughter who is under attack, you slash yourself in grief. A siege is set against us. They are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. And then the very next verse is the one that we've been looking at. O you, Bethlehem, small among the tribes of Judah, among the cities, out of you will come a ruler. Now, what's he talking about? What's Micah talking about? Well, I believe he's talking about the worst day in Israel's life as a nation. If you look at Micah and the other prophecies he made, plus the other prophets, you realize he's talking about the total destruction of all of Israel. Now, just before he made this prophecy, something happened of great significance. The king of Assyria had already wiped out most of Israel. Last week, I talked about how 10 of the family lines, the 10 tribes of Israel, had formed what was called Israel. The Assyrians swept in, killed most people, and took the rest into exile to Assyria. The only thing that was left at the time that Amos or Micah was talking here was Judah and Benjamin and the city of Jerusalem. And the people were talking like, well, I'm sure nothing's going to happen to Jerusalem. It's God's city. We're all set. And then all of a sudden Micah says this, now daughter who's under attack, you slash yourself in grief. A siege is set against us. They're striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. He's describing the siege that was going to take place against the city of Jerusalem, and it would lead to its utter destruction. When it says he struck the, the judge on the face with a rod, it's an insulting type of idea. Like if you slap somebody. It's humiliating. You slap somebody, only this is a rod. It's talking about the destruction of Israel now. I don't know how you'd feel if you heard a prophet say that's what's happening to America. I mean, if, if they said that, I'm not saying that. But what if, what if already two-thirds or three-quarters of the nation had been taken over by some other entity and the only thing that was left was our capital, Washington, D.C., and of course the state of West Virginia, we'd be left. Because <laughs> we're close by, you know. And we think, boy, we dodged a bullet. You know, the Assyrians came, the Assyrians went, we're still around. We're doing okay. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes along and says, oh, I got news for you. It ain't done yet. Now, he wasn't describing the Assyrians in his prophecy. Most scholars are convinced it was Babylon. And actually, the events that Micah was talking about here weren't going to happen for about 100 more years. God, in his kindness, was giving them more time to turn back to him, to not make the mistakes that their neighbor Israel had made. It was, it was God's grace. But what's encouraging to me about Micah's prophecy is that right after he says, this is it, guys, because they were going to be completely annihilated. The only people left in all of the nation of Israel when the Babylonians were done were the poorest of the poor. They left some people there to kill the animals so that they didn't outgrow the land. I mean, that's all that was left when Nebuchadnezzar was done. 
in the midst of that prophecy of utter destruction, God said, I've got some good news. I'm not forsaking you completely. And that's where we get into the next verse. Verse 2 of Micah 5. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you're small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. Verse 4, he will stand and shepherd them in the strength of Yahweh, or the Lord as most of your versions put it, in the majestic name of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. Mike was prophesying in this small town of Bethlehem, someone was going to come and be raised up, and he'd be a ruler unlike any other that's ever been born, because how is he described in Micah? Well, it says about him that he was around for eternity. His origin is from antiquity, <clears throat> from eternity. Micah was saying that someone is coming in the future who existed in the past, eternally. For people that suggest that there's no evidence that Jesus is divine, he, he's God, he was God in the flesh. He was there at creation. And Micah's prophesying this one who existed in eternity past is going to come. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's how you're going to know it's him. And it says he's going to reign over all the earth. Now, last week I made the point that a lot of biblical prophecies have two and three fulfillments. This is an example. Only half of this was fulfilled. Only the part of his birth we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but then he went to a cross. But this is why we believe he's coming back. Besides the fact that Jesus says, I'm coming back, told his disciples, I'm coming back, the same way you saw me ascend into heaven, I'm returning. We believe he's going to rule literally on the earth. Micah was prophesying the same thing. He was going to bring once and for all lasting peace, which is what Jesus wants to do in this world, and it's what he wants to do in our own lives as well. It was an amazing prophecy. And this baby was born, and he's described as someone who would shepherd Israel. So here we come back to this analogy. Now, you remember when Jesus walked the earth, at one point he talked to his disciples about being a shepherd. In John chapter 10 and verse 14, he said, I am the good shepherd I know my own sheep, and they know me. As the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, he was claiming again, I think here, to be heir to the, the throne of David, that other shepherd that lived in Bethlehem that became a king. And he says, I'm the kind of shepherd, and my sheep know me, and they know, and I know them. Now, if you're a believer in Christ, if you really have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you understand what this is talking about, don't you? Like, you know Jesus and, and he, he talks to you and you talk to him. I know that people that don't understand, I think it's like crazy. But it's true that we understand, we hear his voice. We recognize the Lord Jesus as he's trying to shepherd us. Now, again, this illustration of a shepherd isn't always helpful for us, but it does relate to where I want us to apply this because I'm, I do believe that we need a shepherd in our lives. We don't always recognize it. The place I would go to understand what Jesus wants to do in our lives is Psalm 23. We think of that as just a psalm that David, the great shepherd king, wrote. I kind of view it as a prophetic psalm, a prophecy. 
Many of you have memorized Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. By the way, that means I shall not be in want. For years of my life, I thought, why don't I want him? Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It didn't make sense, I don't want him. No, I shall not be in want. That's what he wants to do for us. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness, the path I need to take for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear any evil because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You go to prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemy. In other words, I'll be victorious because of you. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I think, I think Jesus wants to be our shepherd. Of course, he said that to his disciples and he says that to us as well and he's the shepherd of Micah 5.2 and Micah 5.3, the one who wanted to shepherd all of Israel, which includes all the believers in Christ. So my question is, have, have you found him to be your shepherd? And are you allowing him to lead you in these places? Are you allowing him to restore your soul? Are you trusting him to lead you in the green pastures and take care of your needs and protect you from harm, lead you through the very valley of the shadow of death where you don't have to fear evil? He wants to be our shepherd. But let's wrap up the story of the Magi because they were told where it was and so they decided to head to Bethlehem. Matthew 2, 9, we read, after hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen in the east. It led them until they came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Their trip was met with success. Now, I'm curious if they would have, and I'm really not curious, it's more maybe rhetorical, would they have viewed that this was worth it? I mean, when you think of all that they went through, just to come and then give their gifts, and then go back home, See ya, honey, in eight more months. You know, make sure you send the dispatch. For them, it was worth it because they'd met Jesus. I, I am convinced he is worth it. Some of you don't yet have a relationship with Christ. Uh, he makes all the difference in the world. In this life and the next. In the next life, of course, through faith in Christ, we receive the free gift of eternal life because he died for our sins. He paid the price so God could accept us as his children. In this life, he's our shepherd. Have you put your trust in him? That's the starting point for some of you. Uh, the rest of us during this time of year, I just think of following the example of this ma these magi in terms of their acknowledgement of who Jesus was and the adoration they had for him. This is a wonderful time of year to focus on adoring him. By the way, when it says they presented his gifts, the word that's used for presented is a religious term. It, it's a word that's used to offer a sacrifice. When it says you, you presented the lamb to be sacrificed, it says they presented their gifts. That's something you do to God. They knew who he was. And, and their lives were changed by this encounter, I'm sure, with this baby.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story. Thank you, Lord, for including this example of how you somehow reached out to these non-Jews, these Gentiles, and became for them a king and a savior and a God. And you are indeed worthy of our worship, and we're grateful because it means the door is open to the rest of us, Lord. They're the ones who saw religious leaders of the day did not. Most of the people of the day did not, but they did. And they found Jesus, and that's worth everything. Pray, Lord, today, if any don't know Jesus Christ, they'd come to find him today. And Lord, I pray you help us to adore your son, for he's worthy of our praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to talk to someone, by the way, about how to begin a relationship with God, there'll be some people up here that will talk with you or pray with you immediately after the service. Have a blessed week.